Ravi Zacharias, I'm wondering how many of you are familiar with Ravi, uh, Christian apologetic, apologist, yeah. In, uh, in his book, uh, Can Man Live Without God, he says, uh, he tells about an arts building at Ohio State University. And it's a building that has, has been branded America's first deconstructionist building. He says that when you enter the building, you encounter stairways that go nowhere, pillars that hang from the ceiling without purpose, and angled surfaces configured to create a sense of dizziness. The architect designed this building to reflect life itself, senseless and incoherent, and the capriciousness of the rules that organized the built world. Says Zacharias, when the rationale was explained to me, I just had one question. Did he do the same with the foundation? There was laughter for him too. There was laughter in response to my question, which unmasked the double standard of our deconstructionist expose. The double standard that the deconstructionists have embraced. Because unless an edifice has a foundation built according to the objective standards of sound engineering, it's not going to stand. That would be like Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 15, where he teaches that unless... Christ literally and physically rose from the dead. There's no foundation for the Christian faith. The whole thing collapses. And you know, that would be true of the prayer that he offers here in Ephesians chapter 3. And if you brought your Bibles, you might want to follow with me as I read this. You have been studying Paul's prayers. And today we're going to look at the one uh, that begins at Ephesians 3, verse 14. But I want to say even before we read it, that apart from the resurrection, that prayer wouldn't work. It doesn't make sense. It's only because of his Christ's death, and resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father that this prayer would make any sense. Reading then from Ephesians chapter 3, beginning at verse 14. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, 
that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all that we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. I'd like to look at this prayer under two very simple headings, beginning with the reason for his prayer and then looking at the content. What exactly is it that he's praying? But he begins here by saying, for, for this reason, verse 14, for this reason I kneel before the Father. And verse 16, I pray out of his glorious riches. The reason, but what is the reason here that Paul is offering? Well, you have to read the verses that precede. And uh, in, the, in the, the verses immediately before the prayer there, he is uh, describing himself as the servant of the gospel, that by God's grace he has been called to be a servant that teaches preaches, proclaims, lives according to the gospel. And then prior to that, Paul is explaining how that because of the cross of Christ, as we sang about, the old rugged cross, God has brought together the Jews and the Gentiles, and he's made them one body. And I sense that the way that Paul refers to that and goes into depth in explaining, it's like he's reveling in this. It's like, he is, it, it's like he's jubilant about it. And that this is, it's almost like something unexpected, a mystery that was hidden prior, that somehow the Jews and Gentiles are to be brought together into one body. And that, I think, has to do with the reason why he is offering this prayer. Uh, listen to some of these verses. Verse, uh, verse 13, uh, back in, in chapter 2, he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away, and he's writing to these who were Gentiles, okay, are Gentiles. In Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And then verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups, the Jew group, the Gentile group, two groups, one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity. How about that? One new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. And so the cross is about reconciliation. That as Christ paid the penalty for our sins, he reconciled us to God as we turn to him by faith. But here the explanation is not only where we reconcile to God, but the two divisions within humanity, the Jews and the Gentiles, 
were brought in together, reconciled together. That happened the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. But the work of Christ on the cross cannot be separated ultimately from the resurrection. For the resurrection becomes the vindication of the work that he did on the cross. And by the resurrection and by the ascension of Jesus, the outcome is implemented. The outcome from the cross is implemented. Uh, One text that puts the two together so nicely is Hebrews 1, verse 3. He says, there he says that, I'm not sure who the writer of Hebrews is, but the writer says that after he had provided, after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. See there how that the cross and the resurrection and the ascension are brought together. But out of that work of the cross, these Gentiles along with the Jews have been made into God's special people. And in verses 19 to 22, we have different expressions that describe their new identity. Ephesians 2. Uh, Verse 19, they're called fellow citizens. Jews The Gentiles are joined in with the Jews and they become fellow citizens with God's people. Uh, Also, verse 19, members of his household. Verse 21, holy temple in the Lord. Think of that. You and I are part of his holy temple. And then in verse 22, we are the dwelling place in which God dwells by his spirit. All of these accomplished by the work of Christ. That's our identity as Christians. In the last edition of Christianity Day, there was a most uh, relevant article that was entitled The Most Astonishing Easter Miracle. And uh, the writer is making the point that the most astonishing uh, Easter miracle is that we are now identified as in. We are in Jesus Christ. He says Paul uses that phrase over 200 times in his letters. Christians do not merely believe truths about Christ. We do not merely trust in God's forgiveness given at the cross and that Jesus rose bodily from the grave. The most distinctive mark of Christians is this. We are people in whom the resurrected Christ dwells. He lives in us. Our identity We're in Christ, and he is in us. Now, we like to sometimes make a lot about our earthly identity. And you know, it's interesting how that uh, Paul talks about diversity in many different places. We are diverse. We are diverse. Jews, Gentiles, old, young. But he doesn't dwell on that. He brings it all together that we are one in Christ. For example, Galatians 3.28 says there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, but male or female, but we are one in Christ. There's all of that diversity. But the most important part of our identity is that we are in 
Jesus Christ. And that relates to this bringing together of the Jew and Gentile. And I look at you, and you look at me, there's a lot of diversity here. Some of you are, I don't know what you call yourself, colored, dark. Some of you are white. Some of you are older. Some of you are younger. Lots of diversity. And that's good. But we don't revel in all that diversity. What's most important is that we are one in Jesus Christ. You know, I might like to say I'm Norwegian. Or I'm a farmer. Grew up around Grand Prairie, Alberta. Of course, I'm proud of that. Or I'm Lutheran. Or I'm Baptist. Or I'm white. Or I'm African American. Sure. But in the Jesus Christ, we are one. And that is what is especially significant about our identity. And I believe that's why Paul is saying, for this reason, because of this, because you together have become the church, the temple, the people of God, for this reason, I offer this prayer. And so as we look at the content in the prayer, he says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Because of who you are, it's important that this takes place in you. And so I'm praying that the Holy Spirit will really do this type of, keep on doing this kind of uh, work in you. See, uh, when Jesus lived on earth, the Son of God was localized. He was in Galilee or Jerusalem, Judea. But when he ascended, he sent the Holy Spirit And now Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, is resident here in each of our hearts. Each Christian, it says, has the Holy Spirit in him. And the Holy Spirit is the presence of Christ. And then he says here, as he he prays for him, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Of course, he doesn't mean that Christ will come into their hearts for the first time because that takes place for every Christian, but may dwell in the sense that all of his qualities, the perfections of Christ, his grace, his love, his purity, his focus on others, all of those qualities will really, in, in that way, he will dwell in you so fully. And, uh, and so he goes on to talk about beyond that in the content. He says that you might be rooted and established in love. And again, because of who, who you are. You're God's people. And so I'm praying that God will keep working in you so that you really will, you really will, have these qualities of Christ living in you. You know, when you think about it, it's quite a label to carry. We are God's holy temple. We are part of his household. 
We wear the name of Jesus Christ. That's our label. What an identity. What an identity to carry. What a loaded identity, both in terms of privilege and responsibility. And so it's no wonder then that because you are the people of God, this is the way I'm praying for you. See? This is the way I'm praying for you. And as he talks about the love here, I pray that you being rooted and established in love. It's like, uh, let love be the very soil in which you are rooted and out of which you are growing. And then he talks about that the power of, of, of God in you, the same power that was used to raise Jesus from the dead, that's in chapter 1, verse 19, that that same kind of power will work on you so that you will really get it. You will really grasp it. You will really comprehend the width and the depth of God's life. How wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Reminds me of a song we used to sing years ago, that the love of the love of God. But I'm wondering why why is Paul praying that? Is it it's almost like he wants him to understand it? Yeah, that's part of it. But Paul is far too practical a person, practical a, a Christian leader to simply want them to understand it in an academic way. But of course, his thought, his concern is that when you really get it, the wonder, the depth of God's love for you, it will influence, it will direct you. It will be that which drives the direction of your life. I wonder, can you think of how if we could fully grasp how much God loves us, how that will influence us? Not that many years ago we used to sing that song, Oh, how he loves you and me. Oh, how he loves you and me. He gave himself what more could he give? Does it make a difference if we really get that fully? How might that work in our sense of confidence, in our sense of assurance? James referred to that earlier, that whatever we do, we're saved by grace. Would it make a difference as we become aware of our many imperfections, that we don't become so paralyzed that we can't do anything or that we are immobilized, but that we come to realize that his love is so complete that it covers that. You think it would motivate us to continue to serve knowing that I am loved and ultimately all is well. Yeah, of course. Of course it will affect the way I approach my daily responsibilities. But do you suppose it would also affect the way I look at others with all their imperfections? Do you suppose it would make a difference in me wanting to extend grace to my brother and sister when they don't 
treat me quite the way that I think they should treat me? I think so. And so Paul here is praying for them that Christ might really dwell in them, that Jesus in all his perfections will, well, they will be embodied in them. Now, Jesus was around Galilee in his resurrection body for 40 days, right? 40 days after he rose, and he made some appearances. Probably about, looks like he appeared about 10 times. We read about that in the Emmaus Road experience. That was one of them. There was two there, actually. And um, maybe like 10. And wow, how significant those appearances were to, to those to whom he appeared. But then he ascended. And with that, the era of appearances was over. But that does not mean his presence is no more. The assumption in Ephesians is that he is present through the Spirit dwelling in his people. No wonder then that as Paul considers that these people, people in the Ephesian congregation or perhaps a number of congregations because the book of Ephesians may very well have been a circular letter that was read by different congregations. No wonder then that he really prays that the qualities of Christ will be resident in them because they are the presence of Christ in the world today. Wow, <laughs> what a privilege and what a responsibility. What an opportunity to be part of something that is so significant. It's like we as Christians are the very venue for the risen, risen Lord's presence on earth. And this is especially true in our togetherness. In isolation from one another, most of these qualities aren't really operative. How do you how do you exercise love in isolation? How do you exercise grace? How do you exercise mercy? No, the emphasis in Ephesians is the togetherness. The togetherness. Verse 2, or chapter 2, verse 22. In him you too are being built to become a dwelling in which, which God lives by his spirit. I left out one word there on purpose. In him you too are being built together together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. It's in our togetherness, in our fellowship, the way we worship and fellowship and serve together that these qualities of Christ are embodied. Now there's a certain consistency between Paul's prayer here and what Jesus said in John chapter 13. Very familiar verses. John 13, 34 and 35. <clears throat> and this was in, <clears throat> in the upper room. 
and he said, a new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. As I said, this was in the upper room, so our Lord at this point was looking ahead to his resurrection and what followed. And the new commandment is that they will love one another after the pattern by which he loved them. And that becomes their identification mark because Jesus went on to say that by this, the world, all people, will recognize that you are my disciples. What a way for us to make our lives count, knowing that as we love one another, as the very qualities of Christ are embodied in us, we are into that which is eternal. You know what? Uh, a few years ago, I was a pastor at First Baptist in Camrose. And uh, <clears throat> it was our yearly tradition to have a Good Friday service with m- people from many other churches. Uh, we'd rent a community center and we'd be there together. Well, on this particular occasion, my uh, friend uh, Ralph, uh, who was pastoring in one of the other churches, he expressed uh, thanks to me because our church, we had provided the facilities for a funeral service that his congregation had just done a few days before. And uh, I responded by saying, you know, it was an honor for us to help you, but I'm sorry that it was needed and uh, then I made some kind of comment, uh, support, condolence type of comment to him because I knew the person that uh, had passed away was a friend of Ralph's. And uh, Ralph responded in this way. He said, ah, oh, he says, but we, we know the big picture. We know the big picture. But what a statement and how well it fits with a New Testament perspective. We know the big picture. And that fits with what Jesus said, lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth. Or Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And you see that those kind of teachings only make sense. You know, think about it. Lay up treasures, not on earth, but in heaven. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain only makes sense when you look at the big picture. And it is the resurrection of Christ. It's Easter that is at the very heart of that big picture. Because we live then as those who realize that this is not all that there is and that the best is yet to come. Because of Easter, the call of Jesus to deny self, to carry the cross, makes sense. Because of Easter, the call to love our neighbor, to forgive our enemy, to be servants of others, makes sense. Because of Easter, the call to stand up and be identified with Christ, even at personal risk, makes sense. 
Because of Easter, we can persevere when life sucks. We can endure hardship, even as Jesus did. And because of Easter, we don't lose hope in the context and in the experiences of sorrows and even tragic tragedies. In the experience of the loss of friends and loved ones, the loss of our health as our bodies deteriorate, and in the facing of death itself, we don't lose hope because of Easter. One pastor writer tells about visiting a man on his 85th birthday, and as they were sitting down, this man said to him suddenly, about my life, I could now write the words, no more. My wife, no more. My friends are, no more. My freedom is, no more. I sit here at home, in a home for the aged. My house, no more. My good health, no more. My good hearing, no more. My walking so easily, no more. My memory as accurate, no more. All no more, no more, Pastor. And that is reality. If we have the privilege of getting older, then that becomes, to some extent, our reality. And this would be so sad if this life were the main thing. But Easter calls us to look beyond the limitations of our current lives, to look to that which is to come, to look at the big picture. Gospel singer Carolyn Arends tells about the dying of her father. And at the end, he was wearing what his doctors call the Star Wars mask, a high-tech oxygen system that covered most of his face. Pneumonia had made his breathing extremely labored, but that didn't keep him from chatting. He would yank off the mask when they didn't understand him, and after several hours, he gave up on conversation. He started singing. What are you humming, my mom asked. He tried to answer through the mask, but again he had to yank it off. With Christ in the vessel, I can smile at the storm. My dad had learned it at camp in the summer he asked Jesus into his eight-year-old heart. And now six decades later, hours before his death, that old camp song was still embedded in his soul and mind. And he was singing it at the top of his nearly worn-out lungs. Says Arends, death unaddressed is the boogeyman in the basement. It keeps us looking over our shoulders and holds us back from entering joyously into the days that we are given, but dragged out from the shadows and held up to the light of the gospel. Not only does death lose its sting, it becomes an essential reminder to wisely use the life that we have. We can look at death squarely because of Easter and then it loses its boogeyman power. And we can look at it even while we're healthy, knowing it's coming. And so in conclusion, Easter confronts us with a practical and daily choice. 
We can approach life every day with the aim, get all you can out of it, here and now, or we can approach every day making Christ and his kingdom the priority, whether we're old or young, whether we're showered with happy circumstances or overwhelmed with hardships. In each case, offering ourselves as we are in our situation for his service and honor, being the kind of people that pray Paul's kind of prayer for our congregation to be the kind of people who welcome this prayer emphasis so that we might be those in whom Christ dwells in us in such a way that we embody his very qualities. 1 Corinthians 15, after teaching that everything we stand for as Christians is built upon the resurrection, Paul then ends the chapter with these words, which I think we should take home with us. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. I can't think of a better song to end the service with than the one that you've already chosen. Let's sing together, Because He Lives.